Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Things Iceland. My name is Jules, and this week's episode is fascinating for many reasons. It's special in that I had the honor of speaking with Trikvi Runar Jr., who is the grandson of one of the people who was accused of committing a crime, specifically of this man, his grandfather, was one of the people who was thought to maybe kidnap two different people, murder them, and hide the bodies. Pretty intense. And in Iceland, this case is very famous and infamous, if you will, mainly because the bodies of the people that went missing in the 70s were never found. People were still not aware of what could have possibly happened to them or what happened on those fateful evenings, two different evenings in which these two different men went missing. And there was a lot of upheaval in society regarding like trying to figure out who did this. And also there's a lot that comes into play regarding xenophobia and just socioeconomic status, things like that, that get wrapped all into this. And Trigvi is such a lovely person. And we actually did the interview in my living room. And in my living room, my current living room, because we are moving, we have pretty high ceilings. And even though I used microphones and, you know, my little setup and everything, it's still a little bit like reverb echoey sounding. So just like a note to you while you're listening that you might kind of hear this while the audio is playing. But I still wanted to share this because the things that he talks about are so important. And of course, he like really breaks down everything. And there's a Netflix special around this particular story, this real life story about these people disappearing and what happened. And I highly recommend people watch that. I will have a link to it in the description box. And and yeah, there's, there's a lot to it that for me, I learned so much through Trigvi, through the Netflix special, and of course, like reading about stuff. But when it comes to family dynamics and also legacy, there's in a small community like Iceland, you really get a chance to kind of hear in Trigvi Runar, a junior, how these things played out for him or have continued to play out for him and how he kind of views Iceland even though he's born and raised here, it, it's very different than many others who have lived, grown up here, or even have decided to make Iceland their home if they're from somewhere else. So I hope you enjoy this different perspective on Iceland and also just some background information about those individuals. If you hadn't heard about these stories before, meaning like the disappearances, then this would be, I think, a good introduction for you to learn about it and maybe learn more. Like I mentioned, there's some links in the description box. As always, I hope you enjoy. First of all, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. My pleasure. And do you can, or you know, in terms of a just some context regarding what we're talking about. There's a disappearance of two individuals. There's actually a Netflix documentary that was made about this. And your grandfather was one of the people who ends up being wrapped up in these disappearances. So yes. can you just give a little bit of information about that? All right. So in 1974, there were these two men who are completely unrelated, Guðmund Reynason and Giffen Reynason. They 
Gung has seen one at the beginning of the year and the other at the end. So Gwilman disappears in January mm-hmm. and Giffen are in November. And these, you know, Gwilman disappearance is not initially investigated as a crime. It is just, you know, a missing person. There was a blizzard outside. He was making his way from, you know, this one town to the other. So it was never really suspected that it was there, that there was a crime involved in that. Right. But the disappearance in November of Gifford and Amazon in Keplavik, which is close to the international airport, mm-hmm. that, you know, from the beginning raises some suspicions because there was so much more mystery mm-hmm. around it. Yeah. But this is 1974. Mm-hmm. And both those investigations, both into the disappearance of Grimmelder and Gifford, lead uh, nowhere. So no one at the time is arrested, but... With the Gitfin disappearance, there are lots of rumors going around. Everyone is, you know, it's it becomes, uh, you know, this massive societal thing. It's right. on the news all the time. But it isn't until over a year later, mm-hmm. over Christmas, it really happens, 1975, uh, that we have these two young people. These, uh, they were recently parents. Um, they are arrested for um, unrelated crime, and uh, yeah, yeah, which they certainly committed. And we get these, I guess, reports, confessions mm-hmm. relating to the disappearances of women in and So that is how the whole thing looked to the Icelandic population mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. And from this initial, from their initial arrests, we have this whole long string of arrests, including my, including my grandfather's, and including some other people who were then let go. Mm-hmm. You know, so some people ended up getting uh, wrongfully convicted in this case, mm-hmm. and other people were, you know, in solitary confinement for a long time and then yeah. released. So I guess that's the sort of very very basic yeah comics. which i appreciate yeah because <laughs> yeah. obviously like mentioned this is very layered and if you want to kind of dive deeper out of thin air mm-hmm. netflix at least gives you first-hand accounts from some yeah. people um like Lock, she's yeah. featured a lot in this yeah. uh it's pretty obvious the toll that this took on him and i'm sure mm-hmm. others as well so yeah, you can check that out. <laughs> you know, like this because it's. I was I was even telling Trigri that I was watching it this morning, <laughs> and he's like, "That's kind of a strange thing you watching in the morning." And it's like, yeah, but it put me in this, you know, the, yeah. the emotional space of what went down. Obviously, wasn't here, and don't know what it's like to be part of something that your whole life is being turned upside down, and the potential for it and your family and reputation. But it at least gave me. A better understanding like i mentioned the article that you wrote that you shared with me which is really extensive and that too is what i would like to really go into as well mm-hmm. like so many about the judicial system about i think just even opinions of the masses like mm-hmm. once you start to hold on to a specific idea about people and mm-hmm. their past and how their past can sometimes lead to them being automatically thought of as guilty mm-hmm. uh, as well as governments and their role in all of this like there's so much here yeah. so as in a way it like excites me because it's like wow we get to hit so many different things but it also saddens me how much this has affected and impacted families and individuals 
so many families too. Uh, it's not just, you know, like I said, these, it, it, it's not just the families of those who ended up being wrongfully convicted. It's, you know, it still surprises me to this day to hear about all the people who were observing, people who sort of knew someone. And it's really been uh, the, the metaphor that's always used here in Iceland. It's been like a nightmare that has been like, laying on the nation for all these mm. for all these years and yeah. decades and the so now I'm, to explain the origin of this metaphor i have to jump over you know a few <laughs> a lot of steps okay. but what ended up happening was that the icelandic justice minister at the time his name was Ólafur Jónsson he was heavily attacked and heavily criticized in parliament he was considered to have been sort of curtailing or blocking the proper investigation into the disappearance of Gerfinn Reynoso. And what this justice minister did was that he reached out to a West German, this veteran detective. He was a really high-ranking official from the West German Bundeskriminalamt, which is the like the biggest police. Sounds very good. Yes. <laughs> and this guy came and he really just came and harshly uh, interrogated and tied the loose ends of this case. And when he was leaving the country, he had a press conference and he said, you know, okay, we got this case. We know that these, you know, particular young people committed these crimes. This is ready to be submitted to the court. Mm -hmm. And after this press conference, before the judges had even touched it, mm -hmm. the justice minister steps forward and says, a nightmare has been lifted off wow. the nation. Yeah. <laughs> So everyone, their minds are literally made up, especially yeah. when you have this outside resource, right? It's supposed to be yeah. unbiased and totally has got all the facts down. Yeah. And he's German, so it's like, of course, <laughs> you yeah. it, right? But yeah, that is, that is hard. When you talk about needing and getting a fair trial, like how is that even possible? Yeah. Especially with Iceland being so small. So I think yeah. then, at least according to the documentary, I think it was about 220,000 people living here. Yep. Yeah. So everyone considered it like a village <laughs> in terms of like how small it was. I was like, that's not a really big village in my opinion. Yeah. But still, like there is this... It know, still is. Yeah. It still has that, it still has a lot of traits of being a village. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So my thing is, okay, so people are arrested. And it's specifically, it comes down to six individuals that mm -hmm. are focused on, right? You mentioned that there are other people, but they were let go. And one of them being your grandfather. And there's a whole story that comes up that is about how they did it because mm -hmm. in essence there is no evidence mm -hmm. that no. anybody yeah. did anything there's no there are no bodies yeah, that's, that's, a, the, that's an important point. that's like yeah. the really intensely crazy thing to me right now is you know there literally is just no trace to any of this as, mm -hmm. as well as just even for the families that lost these people the ability to have closure to be like we even you know had the bodies to bury or whatever mm -hmm. or found remains but Somehow a story emerges that all of these six people were involved mm -hmm. in one way or another or had knowledge of something that had gone awry. So could you talk a little bit about like this story that comes out and then a retraction, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and there's what's happening here. I mean, we're not used to hearing about an Iceland potential coercion of people's stories. Yeah. You know, and I think in the documentary like I mentioned to you, I didn't finish the rest of it the last 10 minutes or something but i didn't see this idea of 
how that part really comes into play with this whole story and even with the Syrod who gets villainized pretty heavily mm-hmm. and he has a foreign last name the foreign foreign look you know <laughs> but like it's kind of like one of those things that mm-hmm. kind of Feeds on xenophobia a bit. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. This man speaks. He, he's like, right? Like, yeah. This is yep. his identity. So, so yes, this uh, these verdicts they rested primarily, exclusively on these confessions. No hard evidence, nothing substantial, except for these really, really weak uh, confessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were contradictory. They were, you know really not sometimes coherent and but they get these narratives they get these stories and even though you know things don't even add up Mm -hmm. you know like the times the time that it took to get from point a to point b in order to be able to commit a crime you know it just does not add up uh in spite of all that these people are convicted the supreme court you know, convicts them on the basis of their confessions, even though people like my grandfather, people like Sonny, people like Adla, they all eventually, in my grandfather's case, at the very first opportunity that he was given, he took back his confession mm-hmm. and explained how it came about, that it came about through coercion, through torture. Mm-hmm. And he explained that Sonny did as well, Adla did as well. But at the time, no one listen to them. Mm-hmm. And there was a very, I think, obvious reason for that. These people were, you know, like you said, in Saiwa's case, he had this whole baggage around him that was completely, and I think it's very, very easy to say that it was colored by xenophobia. In the case of my grandfather, he was what you might call uh, fairly as well, a petty criminal. Mm-hmm. He had a record of committing some crimes. And he had, and none of them had any sort of, there was, there was no one behind them to support them. Mm-hmm. I think that's... And they don't have a lot of money either. It's not like no. they're from no. well-to-do families or, yeah. you know, these are... Unlike the ones who were eventually let go. They had, mm. they had, and this has been pointed out, they had, you know, lawyers who were willing to actually do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, resources, basically. Yeah. And that, oh, I think just when you think of history-wise, the majority of people, that's usually how it happens, right? It's maybe you get a public defender <laughs> who yeah. also is, their mind and their like, vision of everything is colored by public opinion. Yeah. Which they had already been tried in the public opinion, like, sphere mm-hmm. of people wanting and needing to have people to say did, that they did it. It's mm-hmm. like leaving this on solved to a degree i think i would be unsettled right as an individual and that's what i think is what what really makes it hard is that you're playing on people's fears that if we don't say like oh this we don't find someone who did it that means that they're potentially still out there whoever did it right Mm -hmm. and that we're as society not getting to the bottom of this and not whatever but at the same time you're ruining other people's lives just so that you can have scapegoats Mm -hmm. or you know to justify Mm -hmm. It's but, really just, yeah. The the strange thing about this though is that disappearances are not uncommon mm-hmm. in Iceland. People yeah. people disappear and it happens frequently. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yeah. 
Uh, and sometimes there's suicides that like yeah that aren't that aren't talked about. This is another like, yeah. it's like it's in the news. I've seen it when people like there's someone missing, and then it's like the not, like something was found, but it doesn't go into like what happened. You know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. something foul happened. Mm-hmm. So someone uh, has the statistics for how many disappearances have been you know investigated as crimes, and it's a really 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 low percentage. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it is, okay. but what is strange is that. Um, like I said, these both of these disappearances were investigated in 1974, very, very in a very shoddy, shabby, mm. bad manner. Yeah. So it didn't seem at the time in 1974 that you know there was this sort of oh the police can't handle it. It was more that just oh these are just unsolved disappearances. Yeah, okay. So I, I I would say that it was more. You know, of course, there's a part, you know, we need to prove ourselves capable. But I I would rather portray it in the sense that they, the police and the courts, have gotten themselves into this really, really not a difficult situation mm-hmm. from which they couldn't yeah, back, they back out. Yeah, back out. Yeah. It seemed like people were just wrong. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that is one of the... And we see that theme mm. recurring decade after decade after decade yeah. because because people didn't rest after they were you know wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. My grandfather he made a conscious decision, and there's a, a wonderful interview that I found with him mm-hmm. when he is in prison. He's serving his time for this wrongful conviction, where he says, "You know what? I'm not gonna you know talk about this case. Mm-hmm. I have maintained my innocence in court." All of the documents are there. I've said what I need to say, and now I'm just gonna, you know, move on with my life. Yeah, that that was his stance, but that stance was, of course, built on his uh, view that the system wouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. The system wasn't wasn't going to admit any wrongdoing, and he saw people like Saivar who fought and fought for a really long time. And he was just shut down, just repeatedly. And it was just more humiliations. If you, when he, you know, stepped forward, it just, you know, the, it just continued. The sort of putting them down, humiliating them, these people. So my grandfather's decision was, you know, mostly, he he would talk about this to to anyone who would listen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was one, he, I, I, I have snippets of, you know, someone went to his house to interview him. He, you know, when he was asked, he would talk about it, but he didn't, you know, he didn't commit his life to... Right, like Saivar did. Yeah. That ultimately brought Saivar to a really dark place because of what you mentioned about being shut down all the time and in society just always being on the fringes now because you're seen as this individual, this villain. But at the same time with Saivar, because... It was the state and authorities, they, you know, would, you know, continue to denigrate him. Mm-hmm. But his pursuit of justice, his campaign, also brought with it some people who saw him and some people who finally believed him. Mm-hmm. So in the 1990s, we have, for the very first time, we get a real human rights lawyer on the case. His name is Akhara Alasvinshan. Mm-hmm. And he helps Saiva with his second reopening pursuit. And he just, you know, this, this, 
Ragnar's um, plea to reopen the case, it's stood the test of time. It's just, you know, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> all of these proofs for these people's innocence. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen until 2000 and until, you know, it was 2011 that an interior minister decided, okay, we're going to start investigating the investigation right. again. And throughout this time, I mean, obviously, you have to live here, right? So, yeah. for instance, Saivak, when I saw the documentary, he had moved at some point. So, after he got, so they served in yeah. prison. Mm-hmm. I think Ashwa was there for three years, yeah. and your grandfather was how long? So my grandfather was in the criminal court. He was sentenced to 16, Saivak and Christian Veda to life. But these convictions were softened in the Supreme Court, and... Eventually, my grandfather was convicted for eight years. And Saivar, I think it was 15 or 16. Yeah. So served time, got out, and then even having to deal with, you know, the fact that after getting out and people, whatever, and fighting. But Saivar did leave at some point to go to the United States. But, you know, you know yeah. things are like trying to start a new life. But in the society that you identify with and grew up in, mm-hmm. how hard is that to know that you were continuously seen as this person, so I don't blame him for coming back and trying to mm-hmm. clear his name, but yeah, that, that road is, is quite long, and yeah. continuously long, yeah. long after, you know, moving around. And, okay, so, 2011, things are seemingly yeah. <laughs> changing in the direction mm-hmm. that is positive. Mm-hmm. So, um, my grandfather passed away in uh, 2009, and Saivar passed away shortly thereafter. And after Saivar passed away, people started to, um, I guess, just in the public domain, mm-hmm. people started remembering this case. People started thinking about, oh, you know, how horrible that he never got to see any justice. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that a reporter knocks on my grandma's door. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interview with my grandma and also with my mother. And my mother tells this reporter, you know what, I have these three diaries that my that my father and my grandfather held when he was in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've said it, but my grandfather was in solitary confinement as a suspect mm-hmm. without a conviction for two years. Wow. Which is torture. Yeah. And that is, I think only more recently in psychology and just in the prison system have we been talking about how solitary. Is horrible yeah. and is a form of torture, and yeah. how much, and of course, can lead to so many mental issues, and yes. physical issues, and then easily to coerce somebody as well. The, the list is endless. Yeah. But how they, how the detectives used solitary confinement in this case was as a threat. You know, like my my grandfather's diaries, they detail. He says, you know, oh, the the reason why I confessed was because. I didn't want to sit in here for two more years. <laughs> Who would blame you? Yeah. Right? Which That's is what they were threatening him with. And that is also what they were without threatening him Without a conviction. He was just sitting there as a suspect. And he was always, you know, what is kind of most troubling about his diary is that it's held uh, before he gets to see a judge. Mm-hmm. And he is always thinking like, oh, you know, when they let me you know, in there to tell them what's been going on, they're going to understand that they're just going to let me go. So when he gets to court and he's met with this, like, 
oh, we don't believe you. You signed this confession on this date. So you're going to tell us now that this is not how it went down? Right. So he was just, you know, completely belittled. Just there are these endless steps, really. Uh, but that's what the... So my grandfather, he, unlike Cyrus, he, my grandfather was allowed paper and a pen mm. inside solitary confinement. And in Cyrus's case, it was, he wasn't allowed because it was punishment for his bad behavior. And that's another thing, you know, they were rewarding my grandfather really by allowing him to, and in my grandfather's case, mostly he was painting, mostly he was drawing, mostly he was... He just mine Yeah, basically. So my mother, to continue with the 2010s <laughs> thread, my mother, she exposes these diaries and she, you know, we, we get this forensic psychologist, this eminent forensic psychologist, his name is Gisele Guilherme, to review these diaries. Mm-hmm. And he goes on the news, this person who's been an expert witness in, you know, many different countries, he has helped overturn many wrongful convictions around the world, especially in the UK. We get him on national television saying, you know, oh, these are the diaries of an innocent man. And it's, you know, in this um, atmosphere of people, you know, Saiba had passed away, my grandfather had passed away, you have these diaries, um, and you have this forensic psychologist step forward. It's in this context that the interior minister at the time decides, okay, we're going to um, do something about this, Mm -hmm. which he does. He establishes a work group and they, for the first time, they gather, you know, this, you know, massive ocean of documents. They build a timeline and he also, um, the owner of the minister, he also establishes the legal mechanisms that we needed in Iceland in order to overturn uh, a Supreme Court verdict. We didn't have those mechanisms before. Okay. So it's actually like, in a way, paving a new path for any future wrongful convictions, or even for people who have past wrongful convictions that might now be able to do something about it. Exactly. This, the, how the system was when Saibar was trying to reopen his case, he was just sending his, uh, his files to the same Supreme Court that convicted him. So the idea after um, 2011 was that we needed some independent body yeah. which could review and suggest, okay, these cases need to be reopened and the mm-hmm. Supreme Court needs to review them, mm-hmm. which is what happened. We, you know, we went to the same Supreme Court right. and the same Supreme Court that wrongfully convicted these people exonerated them, my grandfather and four others, but not at the way. And we still are, you know, trying to find ways. We're still trying to find some way someone to listen to all the reasons why Erla, as well as Saiba and Christian, they were also convicted of perjury against these men who were right. let go. This is, you know, the, the perjury verdicts rested on the very same methods. They rested on these statements that, it, that these people made when they were in solitary confinement, when they were, you know, under duress. Mm-hmm. Um, but the state is not willing to say, you know, oh, these were these were wrong. Right. They, they want to have some type of... They're holding on to it for some, some reason. They are, yeah. Because if they say that, oh, you know, 
Erla and Saibar and Christian, they were actually innocent of perjury, mm-hmm. then they are saying that, oh, the state is responsible mm-hmm. for all of these. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. One thing I, I think is interesting to point out is what is so beneficial in this case is globalization. Because you think about people going outside of Iceland mm-hmm. to get knowledge and mm-hmm. experience. And you mentioned this one guy who's helped to overturn cases in the UK, for instance, mm-hmm. right? It's like access to this other information and to bring back tools to Iceland to help progress mm-hmm. society, which would then mean, you know, hopefully a more just system yeah. for individuals who previously, like you mentioned, going to the same Supreme Court on mm-hmm. their own just meant that more ridicule, more frustration, mm-hmm. and uh, more doors closed in your face. Yeah. So that is kind of interesting, too. And, like, even the respect for these other experts who are Icelandic, but mm-hmm. have this experience outside of Iceland, they may be like, no. <laughs> yeah. In order for us to really get down to justice, we have to, yeah. like, look at these specific pieces. And yeah. So I thought that was just interesting about, like, Sairat and the xenophobia, but, like, globalization and kind mm-hmm. of meeting and helping to help society needs more diversity. And just the globalization of human rights norms. Yes. So I think that is one of the one of the things that we have in, uh, in Iceland. It's this tiny little island and Iceland has, the state of Iceland has um, long resisted um, outside interference and meddling and supervision. But what we what we get um, after this case, this case is in the 1970s, mm. the 1980s and 1990s, we have, even though, you know, this particular case, we see just continued silencing, con- continued humiliation. What we're, what we're having more generally is Iceland is being convicted in the European Court of Human Rights. Iceland is getting outside cri- criticism. Yeah, I- Iceland is getting, and it's only in the 1990s, it's in, I think it's 93 or 94, that the Council of Europe Anti-Torture um, Committee just makes their first actual physical trip to Iceland. Wow. Before that time, they had sent all these little um, questionnaires saying, like, oh, how are people in solitary confinement doing in Iceland? Yeah. <laughs> but they have their, their first physical visit. Okay. And the report uh, that they publish as a result of this trip, is completely down. And the, for instance, the jailhouse where my granddad and the others were kept in for all that time, just the, just the building itself mm-hmm. did not meet the requirements for just, just being in that building was torture. The house, human beings. It was, it was a storage room. Wow. You know, it was, it wasn't for human beings is what this report said. And Iceland had been, you know, you know, they had found no problems with it. Never. And it's I, I do think it's a it's a really critical part of it, the globalization. Yeah. The the sort of Iceland thinking and realizing that, oh, if we don't, you know, adapt, if we don't change these things, we're not going to be just seeing how we want to be seen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a civilized yeah. Yeah. And also, 
there's always this competition amongst Nordic countries, you know, right? <laughs> like, most peaceful or most whatever. So. Most gender equality, yeah, most, like, you know, <laughs> rights for LGBTQ people. Yeah. Which, in a way, I like, I love the fact that this is a competition to be like, yeah, yeah we're actually doing it really well. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's obvious that they've come a long way, right? And yeah. I think that's what is most important for this discussion and just sharing of knowledge too. The, well, actually, the number one thing and one of the why you're here is to help people understand that there's an injustice that's still going on. Mm -hmm. This is not a closed case, and we're going to get into that for sure. But there's also just the aspect of where the system is coming from, like how far it has come from this particular Mm -hmm. type of instance, and how Mm -hmm. much this is a domino effect in order to help with things beginning to evolve, whether that's fast enough for some people is another question. Mm -hmm. But there, you know, I think we all coming from places where we can look back and be like, wow, that was horrible. <laughs> and thankfully, there were resources and people that eventually came to help. I mean, so much suffering has happened, and that's just pain, especially for Ashla. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's just like something I wanted to point out, because I think it is also easy to be like, Iceland sucks, and you know, like, but maybe yeah. at this point it did, right? And, mm-hmm. But you have to grow from this. Right? Yeah. If you don't do anything about it, that's when you have, you know, this continued problem of like, mm-hmm. violations of human rights continuously after for decades. Mm-hmm. So, I, I I do think that is a it's a fair point, but at the same time, me looking back at this time, mm-hmm. this is no, the seventies. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's more of like, like I mentioned, it's not yeah. income fast enough. No, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's hard pill to swallow because it's. Literally, just like one generation away. Yeah, and it shouldn't be this way. But this is this is what happened. Mm-hmm. And going forward, though, I feel like with the um, the parliament aspect of it, right? Meaning, there's this plea that happens from uh, and like the current prime minister, Katrin Jakobsdottir. This has involved even her. There's like I mentioned the layers. When you start to unravel this onion, you're like, wow, okay, what is going on in this regard? So I don't know if you want to judge this part or not, or if you want to add some more other context into it, but I think this, for me, was surprising when I read your article, because I was like, okay, there's, of course, always public opinion, but then there's the political aspect of you try to do something right, and your peers, who are usually also your competitors or mm-hmm. you know, other party members uh, mm-hmm. members of other parties I would say can cause a ruckus that ends up derailing any progress yeah right that's like typical politics I think yeah so if you can speak a little bit about how this landscape unfolded within the political sphere as well sure so after uh, my granddad and the others except for Adla were exonerated Katharina Dr. the prime minister she stepped forward and she said, you know, she gave this apology, this public apology. It was really vaguely worded. She said, I apologize to anyone who has experienced some, you know, <laughs> so, so like potentially hundreds of right. people. Yeah. Potentially, you know, like we were saying at the beginning, you know, this has touched so many families, but it was just a really vague wording. And she was asked, you know, oh, does this include Erdla, Bottledotter? And she said, I'm just going to repeat, anyone who's had a difficult time because of this case. Yeah. So it was, uh, she, you know, she didn't want to be 
specific. Mm -hmm. And that, after the exonerations, was what we felt was the general theme. There's no desire to be specific. There's no desire um, on behalf of authorities to really say, oh, this is what it was. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. So they established the government, what they called a reconciliation committee. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, a big word. These are big, these are big things, you know, a public apology. And, you know, three people who sat in this committee who were supposed to be, I guess, you know, working towards reconciling something. And what ended up happening was that for, for the first six months, I guess, me and my family and the other families were constantly just feeding this committee information. We were saying, this is what we want. We want you to go into this. We want you to, you know, look into that, you know, and we had all these suggestions for potential actions of redress regarding, you know, education, regarding policy changes about how people who have, you know, confessed Mm -hmm. when there's no physical evidence. We had all these ideas for what could be done for society to show, okay, we're willing to learn from this. Mm -hmm. We're willing to really um, make amends. But what we got was just complete silence. And then after six months, (laughs) we get a little note from uh, our lawyer. Mm -hmm. And it says, oh, this is the government wants to give you this amount of money. Oh, wow. And, okay. and, and we asked, oh, what is this money for? Are they willing to say, you know, are they willing to say, oh, this is for the X amount of days they spend in social confinement? Is, what is this for? Um, but there was no rationalization. They just clearly, really didn't want to talk. Right. They thought you could just pay you off. Yeah, they just wanted just the money, you know, thrown into these bank accounts, and that was it. Um, so after we get this offer, my family and myself, we go and we meet up with Katrina Rosentich. We have a meeting with her and we explain to her, you know, oh, this is really not what we envisioned after these exonerations, after these historic exonerations that have taken decades um, to achieve. Mm-hmm. And she sits there and she listens and we're expecting, oh, it's going to, you know, improve from now on. She clearly didn't know what these people were, were up to. Yeah. But nothing changed. Mm-hmm. She gave a slightly higher sum of money. Um, that she, like, There's more money to be yeah, yeah. She, she, she suggested more money. And we were just sitting there. And we were just waiting. And for in, in my case, I, I wrote an article at this point, And I was trying to explain to the Icelandic public what was going on. But this was not, you know, going well yeah. at all. And no one... Listen, no one picked up our points, and I was not the only one who was, who was trying to step forward. We also had Rachmel Alastenshaw, this, this really strong and um, well-regarded lawyer. He also spoke out at this point, and we had um, no feedback. Mm-hmm. And things don't start to change until uh, Rachmel Alastenshaw's client manages to... Uh, to get from the government this formal document, because all of this had just been informal at that point. We had no you know, proof that the government was doing this. So I guess that's why people could just let it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had this document, and Ragnar was asking, you know, oh, 
why is this sum being proposed? Mm -hmm. He said the presidents say it's, it's supposed to be this amount, so why does the government want to give um, my client this mm -hmm. amount? Um, and then we get a document, and this is a document that just lays all the blame for this person's fate at his own feet. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, you confessed, so what was the state supposed to do but to wrongfully convict you? Wow. So this was the stance that the government was was really um, trying to drive it. Yeah. Even though they're willing to give you money for something they're considering is your fault. Yes. That is very contradictory. Yeah. Right? It's like, yeah. that's normally not how things happen. That <laughs> someone wants to pay you off <laughs> yeah. for, all, for all the wrongs you did. Yeah. But that was the situation we were in. And when this document came out, because finally we had there something to show, mm -hmm. then we had a massive response from the Icelandic population. Yeah. And people just wouldn't, you know, stand for this. Yeah. People people did not, the, the public just said, you know what, these people have been through so much. Like, yeah. how are you going <laughs> to offer this up? Yeah. But I think that speaks to also, right, evolution within society. Yes. Because you, you talked about, like, the timeline, like the 70s, there was obviously people were just, like, hearing from the police. And mm -hmm. there wasn't this distrust no, there, yeah, or, like, no. criticism. And so it was like, of course if the police say, or if the government says, mm -hmm. or the Supreme Court says, yeah. this happened, we believe you. Yeah. And then there was, like, in the 90s, there was like, okay, wait, what's happening yeah. here? And yeah. like, as we keep going on, like, into the 2000s, and now, like, you know, 2010 and now in 2020 plus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I forget. Yeah. <laughs> 2021. I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah, it's, there's obviously, I think, understanding that it's not always how people are saying it. It's just because the government or you know, police or whatever say this happened, it's not mm -hmm. necessarily the truth. Mm -hmm. And the truth, according to like, the individuals being convicted, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the I think in this case the authorities have their truth they've been holding on to. Mm -hmm. It's like you, you can come up with something and there might be some truth to it, meaning like these people have past records of crime. Mm -hmm. So it's not unusual for something maybe they committed another crime. Mm -hmm. It's kind of intense to go from embezzlement to murder, you know, but still there's this like, you know, trying mm -hmm. to make uh, connections. But yeah, I think that to me is really amazing that people go, no, even though we're still in this very small community. Mm -hmm. I mean, Iceland is now 367,000 people, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a decent jump, but still not as many people. And yet individuals are saying, no, this is not okay. This is not fair. And we're going to be done. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely shocking for me who, you know, I've just received a, a liberal education and I've, you know, grown up thinking, oh, it's healthy to be a little suspicious mm -hmm. of authorities. <laughs> um, but it's really shocking to look at Iceland back in the day in the 1970s. It's, you know, these institutions and these men who, you know, were sitting in these courts and these people who were heading the police, they were, they were just beyond scrutiny. Yeah. And that okay. just... And that is the the conflict. That is one of the conflicts, and one of the many conflicts in this case is these competing truth claims. Mm -hmm. So we have from the from the very beginning, we have people like Saivar and my grandfather saying, you know, this is what's happening mm -hmm. from the very beginning. But they are just completely their their points of view are 
completely disregarded. Mm. And we have the state's version, which is, oh, these people are saying this has happened. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, signed these confessions. And we have this this conflict. And I think it's fair that maybe in the 90s there there was a, you know, Saibar, he really just having shown so much persistence, Mm -hmm. I think, the Icelandic nation couldn't anymore just disregard it. Right. So these competing truth claims that these um, confessions were the result of coercion, mm-hmm. they started to, you know, the Icelandic nation gradually began to think, okay, this is a, this is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, after the Supreme Court exonerations, we just have these, the Supreme Court didn't say what they thought had happened. They just said, they just said, oh, these people are exonerated. They did not, it's not proven that they committed these crimes. So we're going to brush this off their record. But still today, we have these two competing claims. We're, my family is in court right now. And we have our, our version and the state still is holding on to their version. Yeah. So Katrin Yagrathotir, she hand-chose her lawyer for this case, mm. and he is still holding on to the fact that, you know, really the state did, didn't do that much wrong. So we are... Which is an interesting <laughs> stance, because when you think about how much it changed in terms of the people who were in government, mm-hmm. and what, is it really, is it really that damning for the Sunday judicial system to say we were just wrong? Like every other justice system that has ever been right. put up <laughs> around the world. Right, yeah. And that's the part I think that is most troubling for me is why is this part so hard? I think for well, my uh, not so conspiratorial theory <laughs> <laughs> is that, okay, when I look at, for instance, the role of the Supreme Court in all of this, we have really strong human rights lawyer today, Ragnar Alstenson, saying, you know, oh, the Supreme Court wrongfully convicted these people and and he goes further than that he says that there was no basis um for them to to do this at this time right so basically we we end up with this idea that the supreme court passed this wrong verdict when they really 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 should have known better Mm -hmm. and i you know i'm at the university of iceland i'm doing my phd and I'm walking around the halls and, you know, they have this ginormous portrait of the, of a guy who convicted my granddad. And I'm just like, oh, you know, these are, these are really, um, I regard it. These people, like I said, before they were beyond scrutiny, they were, they are, you know, just still today, you know, these are, these are really important. Yeah. It's a protection of legacy. Your life. That's what Absolutely. it sounds like, right? Absolutely. And you're fighting for the legacy of your life. <laughs> I have another legacy. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's like these, which is fair, obviously, meaning like in terms of you saying like, no, just because you are maybe done positive, other positive things <laughs> for a yeah. society, you are not without fault. Yeah. And if we can't admit fault in order to get the justice, yeah. is this a just system? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's <laughs> yeah. the, the question. Yeah. And me and the people on on my side of the fence, I mean, we have never, ever stepped forward and said, you know, oh, we want these these men, you know, brought to justice. We want them to end up in, in prison. Mm-hmm. We have never said that. And that's, ne- that's not... Yeah. That's not know, an end goal. That's, that's not a goal. Yeah. 
It can't be. What we want, what would be the ideal situation for us, mm -hmm. is if some of these people who are still alive, mm -hmm. some of the detectives, some of the junior detectives, all of the Supreme Court justices, you know, they were all old men at the time. Yeah. But some of the people who are still alive, who know what happened, the dream situation for us would mm -hmm. be if they would come forward and told their story. Because, because they are just, you know, silent. And before what I said about the justice system, I mean, I'm not saying that the, the whole system's corrupt because of this one thing, but it does show signs of corruption, right? A hundred percent. is part of the problem. I mean, yeah. regardless of how old it is, it's still powerful. Mm -hmm. And because it's taken such a long time, it's not just as if it was like, oh, the system was corrupted this time. Mm -hmm. Because this case has been in our you know, in our broader system for all this time and all of these different ministries, all of these different ministers, it exposes quite a lot of places that are that are not, I think, as they should be in a in a just and fair society. I want to get into yeah. a little bit about your grandfather. Sure. So I am named for my grandfather and I was my my mother was a single teenage mother she still lived with her parents so i so i grew up um with my grandfather and when i grew up as well my mother got work abroad and i stayed with my with my grandparents so i was very very close to him and i got to know a man who was just so much he he means so much to me and growing up with he was such a a fun spirit. He was such a, a loving grandfather. We were, you know, we were a total dynamic duo. I, I, I went, yeah, I, we, we did everything together and he just brought me along. I was his little sidekick mm -hmm. and the man who I got to know and the man who gave me everything that he gave me, I could not have imagined for, a split second, you know, growing up, and my grandfather had endured what he endured. And I think a part of it, and what my... So I didn't even uh, find out about this past until after my grandfather had passed away. Um, so he passed away from cancer in 2009, and he had been sick for, it was about one and a half, two years. And I, I was... Um, a teenager at the time, and I think that would have been, you know, around the time you know, I was 15 when he would have wanted to maybe share with me. Like you're old enough. Yeah, yeah mature enough to, to grasp what I'm about to say. <laughs> but we never got that opportunity. Uh, he was just, yeah, I guess, you know, in his last months, you know, he would rather have a nice good time with us than, yeah. than to be, you know, talking about this. But when I found out um, about this, I was, you know, first just, I completely, I think, blocked it out for a couple of years or so. Meaning the full extent of what happened? Um, just, I, I, I was just like, oh, I, I just really didn't comprehend. Yeah. Um, I guess. Um, but then I started to ask and I started to look into it and I started to, you know, look at my own childhood and the years before I was born after he was released from prison okay. you know you know with both my you know lived experience and then all of this stuff that I was learning about and I mean 
obviously it was, you know, it was really, really difficult after he got out. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm describing like, oh, I could never have guessed in a million years that he went through all this. But that was because the reason why my, why my mother, my granddad, why no one told me about it, they Mm -hmm. said, is because, you know, oh, your grandfather wanted you to see, you know, the real him, Mm -hmm. not, not this person who's been, you know, beaten and humiliated by, by this society. So I really, I just feel privileged and happy and blessed that I, that I got that. But at the same time, you know, he had this entire other side, this other, this other pain that followed him. And I have, you know, I started, I started interviewing, you know, people he was working with after he got out of prison. Yeah. And, you know, people describe him the way that I'm describing him. He was just, you know, just a really energetic, really um, outgoing, really lovely, and, you know, just a a good, reliable man. You know, when he was a teenager, when he was uh, a young man, sure, he had a really hard time adjusting. He, there was, there wasn't any space for him in our school system. He was, he was bullied when he was a teenager in his first workplace. Um, so he started in petty crime. So he was, you know, he had long experiences with police before he was, before he was taken in for this. And I had a little bit of a, of a hard time when I was, when I was investigating this, I was like, Oh, you know, you know, I, I, I have no idea that my grandfather just had been a criminal, mm, you know? Yeah. So it took a long time for me to, to reconcile. I was like, Oh, you know, he, you know, did these, you know, bad things to these people. And for me, for, a, for some time, I, I, I just thought, Oh, this terrible thing happened to him, but he did all of these bad things to these other people. Mm-hmm. But then I, you know, matured a little bit, I think. And I realized, you know, there's, there's nothing that justifies treating anyone the way that he was treated. Yeah. It is not that black and white, like, you've done wrong in the past, so you deserve wrong in the future type of thing. And, and meaning, like, for something completely unrelated <laughs> to yeah. what, you know, certain time or... that is, I think that's really something all of us have probably dealt with in terms of the view of individuals, those who have been labeled as criminals or still labeled as criminals, felons, like depending on where you live, the rights of those people mm-hmm. also are diminished. So mm-hmm. it's already like your value in society is a lot less. Uh, I don't know if that's the same in Iceland. I think it's more about just how people view you potentially. And, mm-hmm. and But then opportunities are not open to you, right? You're in a mm-hmm. very small place where some people are connected and they remember something that you were a part of. Yeah. That And this is like everybody knew, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, it just follows even of course with the netflix documentary it brings up this feeling too of being like oh but they were crazy if you try yeah. to remind how to justify yeah. like well, maybe people weren't wrong in feeling this way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you still need to technically like be clear-headed about what you're investigating yeah i mean the killing someone is, is just the most serious yes and I, and I meant to I mentioned earlier that I think it was really helpful that you gave the context about in Iceland, it's not unusual for people to have gone missing. I mean, Iceland in general, 
is super harsh and it's modernized a lot. So mm-hmm. if you look at homes, like, you know, my living room right now, right? It's like, but still, <laughs> it's right, not too far away, you could get yourself in a situation that's pretty dangerous. Just, yeah, I'm looking at a mountain right there in a blizzard. You know, people get lost, people, you know, things. Slip and fall, yeah. yeah. It's intense. So, yeah, yeah I think it speaks to, I think, as well, lifestyle and how things are viewed here. But, um, okay, so your grandfather was this lovely person that we got a chance to grow up with and unfortunately didn't get a chance as an adult, or at least when we were on the way to adulthood, (laughs) to talk about it. Do you feel like, though, as you evolved as a human and seeing that it's not so, like, criminal, not criminal, you know, like, black and white, good or bad, good or evil, I should say, that's really what it comes down to, that this is the same in Iceland in terms of, like, people going, no, they're not just these, you know, like, evil people. Mm-hmm. And Syrah, for instance, like we mentioned, he was, like, the ringleader, in essence, mm-hmm. of all of this, right? And what I don't understand a little bit, it's about with Ashla, is, I mean, she was the perjury aspect of it, but she's the only female as well in mm-hmm. this group of six people. Mm-hmm. And so what is going on there in terms of how she's being treated? You know what I mean? Like, is this aspect different? Could you even mention that? Um, so I'm asking a lot of questions and it's a topic, but I'm going to get to it. Because she mentioned in the documentary that the police were like her friends at this point. At this mm-hmm. point because she was kind of isolated from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And your friends are in essence the ones and they're not really a friend, but they're the only ones you can talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like this very like strange dynamic of feeling like a woman who was also coerced into telling on her the father of her child, you know, mm-hmm. her lover, her boyfriend. I don't know exactly what their titles were. So I'm just kind of They were living together when they were arrested. Yeah. So they were yeah. a couple. Yeah. Um but they were college and work I mean that's like the yeah. nice like that that's like the norm of like oh, you're married or something. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, there's this like dynamic that goes on there. And so I don't know, do you have you spoken to her kind of about any of this these aspects of how this was turned into making her part of this story and the criminal as well? I I also have the the privilege to get to know Adla. And her story, of course, is you know also really complex and layered Mm -hmm. but i think what really you know what what you were mentioning that you know that we get in out of thin air the documentary Mm -hmm. is that at some point the detectives who are investigating this case they become her her pals Mm -hmm. but it was you know they had just recently been threatening her with solitary confinement keeping her away from her baby you know her, her infant daughter that's and, the difference. No. And she had been just, you know, completely isolated from the rest of her family, from her friends. Um, and they were doing, you know, all of these things for her that, you know, the police shouldn't have been doing. So they were manipulating her by gaining her trust. So it was a, it wasn't like they were doing like with my with my grandfather, you know. In the middle of the night, they, you know, broke into his cell and they said, oh, now we know what you did. You were, you were confessing from your sleep. You were, you were yelling what you did. 
Um, you know, that's how they did with it was it was harsh. Wow. Okay. It was just really and they were, you know, they tackled each and every one of them differently. Mm-hmm. And in Adam's case, this is how it, you know, started. It was coercion, it was manipulation. And manipulation included making her feel that she had no one else, mm-hmm. that this was her lifeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were also helping. Yeah, like, yeah. like, like with, like with basic life stuff. Yeah. And in my grandfather's case, he also had uh, a detective who was sort of like that mm-hmm. um, for him, who said, you know, they had, and this is a uh, one of the things that the forensic psychologist Keith Williams has spoken about. They had these roles. You have the bad guy, mm-hmm. and you have the good. You know, good it's cop, bad cop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is part of the manipulation. Mm-hmm. It is part of the, you know, we, we, we have an aim in mind and we're going to achieve mm-hmm. that aim. So I don't think they were genuinely her friends yeah. ever, but with my, you know, with my granddad, there's a, there's something of a similar dynamic in which they manage at one point to, to get my grandfather to believe like, okay, they're, they're going to help me out of this hellhole mm-hmm. if I do what they say. Right. But that was for my grandfather only a brief moment. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, in his diaries we get he is desperate yeah. to get out and to to explain, you know, the sort of stuff. Let him keep the diaries. That's the thing that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and have the six, like after they finish serving their terms, I know uh, Ashlaf said that she at some point was able to get back together with Sidewalk, meaning like have decent communication mm-hmm. he was very angry at her you know there's, there's a lot left of course and do you know if your grandfather spoke with any of the other six as well absolutely yeah i mean or other five yeah, six, yeah, six. yeah 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 he was from from what i gathered from my conversations with my family mm-hmm. is that you know during the investigation he is made to believe by the good cop mm-hmm. that, you know, oh, your fate is, you know, you're here because of Sainz. You're here because he said, you know, they are, you know, trying to get them against one another. But he, um, so during the investigation, we have evidence that he was really mad at him. Mm-hmm. Um, but afterwards, you know, he completely realized that Sainz was, was enduring what he was enduring. Right. You know, they were both heavily drugged. They were kept awake for days. They were both, you know, just, it was in, it was intense physical and emotional, mental torture. Um, and my grandfather, when he learned what Sarah was going through, mm-hmm. then, you know, they, there was, you know, they kept in touch. Yeah. That's good to have that support because like when I saw what Sarah looked like after like his, alcoholism really took a toll on him. Like you can see like facial features have changed and things like that. It's just like this is so sad because you have you know this individual is quite broken from mm-hmm. feeling like not feeling I mean it's, it's obvious that he's being denied uh, even the acknowledgement that there was wrong. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So I just was I'm glad to hear that because I wasn't sure about sure. how things have worked out in terms of because it, it mm-hmm. could easily be that you go, I don't want to have anything to do with that person, so people don't associate me with mm-hmm. them any longer because mm-hmm. that of course could work in the opposite direction of being maybe they're up to something else. You know? yeah. 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 And 
I experienced this after the exonerations when they're trying to, you know, throw that money at us. Mm -hmm. um, I experienced they were, you know, also they didn't want us talking to one another. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, you know, you realize that, oh, this is another, you know, another Biden thing. Conquer. Yeah, this is another thing that is in their benefit. Yeah. But I am happy to report that we have good internal relations. Great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And it must have been also this joy when the things were overturned, right? So there's this like yeah. moment where hopefully you were able to celebrate to go, thankfully, mm -hmm. you're now like exonerated. They, this, mm -hmm. These amount of people at the five out of the six right? mm -hmm. or were exonerated, uh, even though, of course, it's sour and bitter to hear that actually wasn't <laughs> you know it's like you know it's like i want to celebrate myself like oh, okay. mm -hmm. but was there like at least a sigh of relief or something that you felt like express happiness over this celebration i mean this is the difference between my my mother worded it she you know in the eyes of the law mm -hmm. you know she was the daughter of a murderer mm -hmm. and then she wasn't you know it's a it's a it's a it's a step <laughs> okay um <laughs> but we all, I think, experienced it. It was a, it was a really bittersweet moment because, mm -hmm. because I and none of us really believed that they were, they would be exonerated mm -hmm. because the trust in these institutions for us is just none. Yeah. Um. So what were we to know? Maybe they would have just said, "Nope, we're gonna throw this back onto the street, and you're gonna have to go through another, you know, ten-year process." Yeah. You know, that could have been the case. So it's, yeah, just this really mixed, mixed feeling, I guess. It is, you know, of course, it's a, it's a huge thing to just formally have this, these verdicts overturned, but I still see so much that, that needs to be done that, you know, I think a modest, a modest evaluation of those exonerations is okay. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a milestone. Right. It's a, it's we're we're on a path. We're on a on a journey. And how do you feel like this has affected your family? Because you mentioned about your mother, right? Mm -hmm. The daughter of a murderer and now not. But do you feel like over the years this has been something that this family has been carrying? And you know, in terms of did you never hear of your parents or any uh, did you how many kids in your So I'll start with Maybe my uh, my grandfather's parents. He had brothers yeah, at okay. the time, and he had three children. So there's there's a family, and it's a and it's a there's the extended family. Mm -hmm. So there are all these all these people who come into this picture mm -hmm. during the case itself. I mean, you know, I've spoken with my my grandfather's brothers, my great uncles. He has two brothers mm -hmm. who are still alive, and it just you know it's as horrible as you can imagine mm. you know what this what these people who were grown up at the time you know what they were because fully conscious of everything that's going on there fully conscious of what he was experiencing that he maintained his innocence they you know i think my family itself i had never <laughs> had any just inkling that anyone at any point doubted his innocence mm. you know every, you know, he never had that. You right. know, they always completely supported him. But they are a part of the collateral damage that I guess the prime minister was apologizing to. To everyone who's had a hard time. Yeah. 
and I mean, they have, you know, in the workplace, mm-hmm. in in the in the families themselves. I mean, it was just that's all. Yeah, for sure. And I have, which creates generational trauma. Absolutely right. And to not have it acknowledged, even now, I mean, when the part of what I suggested when the when these people were exonerated and this reconciliation committee was formed, mm-hmm. I suggested, you know, you guys need to talk to more people. You need to talk to my, my great uncles. You need to know, mm-hmm. you need to learn what impact this has on people. They haven't had a platform to share their stories. Mm-hmm. But that was, of course, they not they didn't yeah. reach out to that. There's no interest in learning or listening. Because then it makes it really, I think it, Brings it to life in a way that it's hard to ignore. Yeah. And that is probably, to a degree, like, you understand why people want to be separated from it, but that is the most important thing, especially if it's so wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. But why not <laughs> yeah. get these uh, accounts? Accounts, yeah. And it's such a small society, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think, you know, like, they have never had any acknowledgement mm-hmm. of what this was like. You know, they were not parties to these discussions with the government after the exoneration, you know. So there is just uh there is just there are lots of people out there. Right. Well you mentioned that your family is currently fighting in mm-hmm. the courts. Mm-hmm. So what is happening now? Meaning like the biggest goal now and what are you hoping for future wise? Our ultimate aim is for just Full acknowledgement. Our ultimate aim is full acknowledgement, and this court case is part of that. Mm-hmm. Like I like I explained earlier, we have this version of events where these people were coerced to sign these confessions because they didn't write them. They didn't, you know, these, you know, these documents. It's very clear right. that these are the words of these detectives yeah. and just the signatures below. We are maintaining, you know that version and the state is still maintaining their version. We want acknowledgement that our version, because the Supreme Court didn't, you know, say anything in their exonerations, we want to have that acknowledgement. And we also believe that these perjuries, these convictions that Atlas still has, and Seiler still has, and Christian also has, we also believe that there is, you know, there is no way that we can rest and settle for them not being taken into account as well. And another thing that I think is, is really important is that there is some lesson drawn from this, mm-hmm. that there is much more done in terms of understanding what went wrong, why, and how we're going to remember it, how we're going to tell this to our you know, children, right. how, how we're going to ask society, say, oh, this is what happened. Because now we have these competing accounts. Right. And I say competing accounts like it's a, like they both have valid. Yeah. Uh, one has just as much merit as the other. Yeah. Actually. No. <laughs> the, the state and Katrin, when she was, when she was explaining, you know, why is the state maintaining this extremely defensive, harsh position? Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, it is um, traditional here in Iceland to uphold utmost defenses when citizens complain about violence. 
she said it's just the tradition. Just, that is so. such a loaded term, tradition. Yeah. It's like, tradition does not mean it right. <laughs> no. And, and, and then she was, then someone in Parliament pointed out to her, and they said, oh, but by law, you as the Prime Minister, you are responsible for your lawyer's position. Mm-hmm. It is your position. This is, you know, a case where you, she is, you know, and this has, you know, been really hard for some people to, to comprehend. Yeah. That, you know, this is, this is her argument. They, you know, people who defend her say, you know, oh, this is just the system. This is, you know, someone from the establishment, you know, doing what is traditional. Mm-hmm. But really, when it all comes down to it, mm-hmm. this is just, you know, her responsibility. And I guess, you know, I guess she's not wrong. It is traditional. Mm-hmm. It is the it is the default position right. of the state. They're not just going to, you know, hear someone out and say, okay, you know, that's fine. They've never done that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a defense mechanism. Yeah. Sure. And to some degree, it does protect them from just kind of seeming willy-nilly and being like, oh, you know, like almost like flip-flopping, but... Mm-hmm. As we mentioned, this is not what this, what's happening here. It's more about no. There's very clear evidence of what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, it's. I think it's a position that is just counter truth. It is, you yeah. know, even even if we've, you know, like I said, with the pursuit in the 1990s. I mean, you have all of these proofs for these mm-hmm. people's innocence and what they endured. It is beyond doubt. Right. Uh, and. The state still says, no, we're going to stick to our guns here. Mm. We're going to maintain our denial. Yeah. So we want the court to say, you know, oh, the state can't um, say this anymore. Because the evidence is overwhelming. Right. Is there anything that you want to leave with people who are watching or listening? Because for many people, this is new to them. Unless they've seen out of thin air. Even if you have. Uh, you have an account from a family member and kind of, and also a person who's advocating <laughs> on behalf mm-hmm. of your family and others who are part of this. I'm just wondering if there's anything in particular you like to leave people understanding about society here. And it doesn't mean that everything's generalized and it's absolutely truth of mm-hmm. this specific thing, but just an overall feeling or idea that you think would be helpful to give people as we kind of wrap this up. That's a a tough question. (laughs) There's a lot to potentially say. I mean, obviously there's, you know, so much on my mind. This has occupied me for um, now a decade. Mm -hmm. And I have learned so much from it. I have, you know, been in contact with so many people, both, you know, people who are on my side, Mm. you know, like, the, the other families involved and but also with regards to the Icelandic authorities mm-hmm. have also you know you know we've had officials come and go and uh, I, it's just been I guess for me as still a young person just a really long and tough introduction to Icelandic society. Mm-hmm. It's been, you know, overwhelmingly negative, but it's also, like I said, it's brought me to all these connections with people. I, I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. But no, I think, I think it's a really interesting 
perspective for sure, because it is so different for everybody. And seeing how you grew up in this country, but exposed to something that is so personal mm-hmm. and yet affects everybody in the country. Meaning like there was there was probably not one person in Iceland who didn't have some type of feeling about what happened mm-hmm. and continuously in history how it's developed and whatever mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. So I think it just kind of touches a nerve. And maybe yeah. that's kind of what I was saying yeah, yeah, yeah. in my own brain thinking about. <laughs> it's just this like touching a nerve in society where the system does not, not only does it not serve you properly, but you are in a position of, okay, I can help to do something, but I just, mm-hmm. the way I connect with Iceland is very different yeah. because of all of this. I guess one of the, one of the strange things to, to go off of what you're saying is that because of this, because of my relationship with my grandfather, I've had, you know, a voice. I've had, you know, something to say. It took me a long time to figure out that I had something to say. Mm. Oh, this is going to be really sad and depressing. But the <laughs> what, what is overwhelming for me is, has been just how easily our perspectives, even still to this day, can be ignored and minimized.